listening to Sugarhouse Sound. Hola a todos, bienvenidos esta mañana. Radio voices. No, radio voices are not welcome. Oh, good, because mine is too high pitched for the radio. Yeah, you've had too much coffee too. Right. Well, so who's here? Let's, should, we say, should we start there? Welcome, everyone. You're joining us today. I don't know. I can't help it. It's gone. So should we do intros? Do it. Yeah, no, who's, who's joining us today? Host. No, no. You, you start. Okay, all right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Buenos dias. My name is Dan Cairo. I work at Westminster College, and I am a community member here in Salt Lake City. Hola, I'm Mariela. Uh, I'm a senior at Westminster College studying sociology and gender studies. Hi, I'm Jackie Lazoo. I am also a community member in Chicago. <laughs> also, I uh, get paid to be a professor at DePaul University um, in the Department of Modern Languages. I'm also uh, currently serving as the Associate Dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, affiliated with a number of departments, kind of like you, Eileen. I have wear many hats. I am also affiliated with the um, Department of Latin American and Latino Studies and the African and Black Diaspora Studies Program. Um, and like I mentioned yesterday when I gave a talk here at Westminster College, um, recently I also um, helped to found and am acting chair of criminology, a new degree program in criminology at DePaul. So I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm Eileen Chansa Torres. I am the chair of English at Westminster College and the chair of gender studies. And I'm extremely excited to have Jacqueline Lazoo with us. And um, these are the folks who are going to talk really exciting stuff about DACA. DACA, among other things, right? Yeah, I think it's important that we also mention that while we also wear many professional hats, mm -hmm. um, especially the community member piece, we're also individuals who are impacted by the policies, the conversations, the discourse that we're going to be talking about. And so I think it's important for the listeners to keep in mind that what is said may not be the opinions of Westminster College mm -hmm. or whatever institution that mm -hmm. we work with, right? Mm -hmm. But they're the opinions and the thoughts of people who exist in this world and in this moment who are impacted by what's going on. I think that needs, needs to be a very clear distinction there. Well, I think that the, I think that that's really important, especially because we spend so, I know I, maybe I shouldn't speak for all of us, but certainly I spend so much of my time thinking about and thinking through um, the lens of um, a teacher or an, or an administrator or a scholar. Um, and not to say that somehow we have to separate all those identities, but um, so much of my heart and, and my soul is invested in being a citizen of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Being a citizen of humanity that um, I, should, I should give it more space, you know? So I appreciate this opportunity to just sit back and really just reflect on things, um, I guess a little less formally, you know? Really allow myself to just sit and learn on the spot right um because that's really what i bring out into the community right that in the communities that i interact with um all of them that's what kind of transcends all these different communities is the ability to just learn from one another so mm -hmm. so that also it should be a segue to thank you both for having me here <laughs> thanks for being it's been a really good experience <laughs> talking to students it's a great place thank you 
<laughs> all right. Well, you just experienced that pause was all of us looking at each other. Where do we start? <laughs> Who's going to start? Who's going to start? Um, and so to start it off, why don't we talk about the pressing thing, right? More news on DACA, right? Yeah. Is, that, is that where we want to start? And then we'll move into how does that tie into literature and like how do we exist in spaces? Sure. Does yeah. that work? Okay. Yeah. DACA. How are people feeling? We've been bombarded with DACA news exhausting. for the last Yeah, weeks. it's a little exhausting. I think that we are at a point where, um, I think we get to this point every single time, and I think that's what really concerns me about our current um, state of being, mm-hmm. is that we've gotten into this, we're trapped in these cycles where something becomes extremely important and we give our entire, like, um, immediate social media attention to it, and then we move on to the next mm-hmm. one. We exhaust ourselves, and then we move on to the next one. And that's such a problem in this particular issue, in these issues, right? Because it makes us feel like those of us who work on these issues and have been working on them for a long time, or have been living them and experiencing them and living through them, and you know, and, and being challenged by them for a really long time, sometimes our entire lives, we can really we don't get to move on you know and I think even as as activists or as a social media activists or however it is that we want to identify in terms of our activism you know we have to remember the privileges that we own mm-hmm. um, right the privilege to be able to in, enter and exit conversations that other people don't right. get to exit and I think that that's um, that's worth mentioning right now mm-hmm. even in the even as we participate in this a podcast an example of you know the type of attention that we give things and then are able to move on from like just just keep in mind that people don't get to move on that once we get sick of memeing about it (laughs) that we don't that there are people who don't get to move on an interesting i don't know if it's trivia but also um to your point a lot of us have been involved in this and living with daca there's a majority of people especially students on our campus who actually don't know what daca is so part of that is daca is an executive order by president obama that was uh, initiated in 2012, which stands for Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. Uh, When we're thinking about immigration reform and the immigrant community, uh, a lot of the focus was created around dreamers, individuals who were brought here by their parents, right? And we can talk about what that construct meant for the immigrant community. And so we're going to be talking about that particular executive order and how that's created ideas. And as you're saying, how people are living in it or have been living in it, and now it's been high and like level 20 because everybody's memeing about it. Yeah. Uh, I was sharing with Dr. Lasso yesterday, or Jackie. Uh, Jackie's cool. <laughs> she is cool. Uh, what we've been sharing yesterday, it's like all of a sudden in the last couple of weeks, I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of people that are tuning in or showing up to the party. And the party's been going on for a while. We've been talking about immigration reform and the importance about talking about amnesty, livelihoods, who gets to be here, um, who's been creating lives here, but people are tuning in now. It is both frustrating and exciting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> frustrating because like, oh, I'm glad you care. Yeah. I didn't know that you cared about dreamers or immigrants in this way. Like, yes, thank you. Yeah. And then I'm hesitant and I want to be like, but where have you, where have you been, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but I'm still glad you're here. Yeah. You said something earlier uh, that brought up this thing about our social activism. Yeah. Facebook mother, brother, I don't know, I just went there. Let me just retract that. We don't want to describe those things. But Facebook 
the epicenter of social activism now has an algorithm that gets to manage how much, how long you are tapped into a particular issue. So you change your profile picture to say like, I support DACA and everybody changed them. And then now the algorithm says like, all right, we are changing your profile picture back to what it used to be. And so we are mechanized, like is it mechanizing the word I'm looking for? Like we are creating now algorithms that get to dictate how often we are tuned in to a particular issue. And this is why we feel a little slimy about Facebook, huh? Mm -hmm. like this is why it's like we're struggling with Facebook because I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that you called it the epicenter of social media because, you know, in um, like for the fancy folks of social media, <laughs> like the elite perspective of social media, that's Twitter, right? Like, you know, people feel seem to feel less shame or less something about saying that it's actually Twitter that they're involved in, right? Because it's more active and you have to keep it moving, right? But the reality is that people still do use Facebook. It's still where people get to just kind of like you know, come in and out real quickly, you know, and um, and 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 really avoid dialogue, right? Um, that's why I, I have a theory that that's why people actually still like Facebook because you can sort of avoid dialogue. You can just kind of like drop your knowledge, like drop your your science, and then move on, right? You don't have the responsibility to respond as quickly as you do with with Twitter. So I do believe that it is a, a, a an epicenter, and that we don't always feel great about it, yeah. right? That's why we sort of. But I wonder if we're looking at this through generational, right? Like, I wonder if it's, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so um, most of the people who are my age and we have this kind of relationship on social media are really on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they're not, not as many of them are on Twitter or any other of the social media platforms. Um, oh, it's totally generational. It's right. totally generational. Um you know, I mean, frankly, you know, my my kids' generation or group or whatever, like they're they're about Snapchat. That's even faster, right? Like right. Tumblr. Even, yeah. So a lot of activism. You've pointed this yeah. out, Marilla. A lot of activism conversations you've brought up in Tumblr. There is this one. Tumblr, yeah. Tumblr was a thing for my thought for my older daughter's mm -hmm. generation. So like you, right? Yeah. So I think the ones that are more surrounded around um, like blogging, around images, mm -hmm. like. Instagram as well um, are bringing up these points um, that y'all are saying but in like shorter conversations and they're still really interesting to look at and to see kind of the dialogue that's happening after that and how people reblog and how they repurpose that image um, is I can't find the word for it but um, you see it across um, the idea of dreamers. Um, there was um, recently a post, well, not recently because it's been circulating since there was uh, rumors that DACA was uh, going to be revoked um, about uh, how we only use dreamers as um, a way to justify how they fit economically into our society not because they have grown up in this community and um, as another student Emma pointed out that our public school systems have stripped them of their of their tongue of their cultures um, 
And so they're really pointing out the ways in which um, whiteness has tried to um, capture and repurpose the idea of dreamers. Right, I mean, to make it palatable. I mean, really, the, the objective behind that was to was rhetorical, right? I mean, that's kind of that's kind of what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, th- it had to be a sellable idea to a society that has decided that decided a long time ago to place value on immigrants depending on their contribution to the economic structure of this society and you know my argument is that if if it existed historically then certainly in terms of the dominant narratives it has only been since we have been talking about immigrants of color coming from Latin America especially that we decided that we had to wrap this conversation around economic contributions in this country. Everybody else gets to sort of escape that that discourse. Um, but we have to justify people of color coming into this country according to their um, capacity to contribute to the labor pool. That's, you know, I mean, we just can't find a bigger example of inequity, right? Inequity in discourse. We have to somehow prove our value um, to the labor pool, right? To the capital, the, the, the capitalist structure of this country. Can we help sustain it? Right? I would add to that. I, I think it's a big focus, especially because of like the, uh, the hatred for brown folks, especially from Southern America, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think I would also add Southeast Asians and Asian individuals to the idea of like, how are they going to contribute economically to our structure, right? And that's where we get a lot of the model minority. Like, mm-hmm. these are the good immigrants who are going to be good at STEM, at science, mm-hmm. all those racist caricatures that we get mm-hmm. of Asian students, right? But it's interesting that it's intellectual. Mm-hmm. It's an intellectual contribution. Whereas you, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't ever hear anybody talking about an intellectual, the intellectual contribution that people from Mexico are bringing right. into this country. We can we talk about, I mean, you hear people do it all the time. Who's going to work in the fields? Like, that's actually mm-hmm. a defense. Mm-hmm. That's what people use to defend mm-hmm. our side of this conversation. Like, who's going to clean your houses? Who's going to, you know, clean the toilets? Who's going to work in the fast food industry? Like, that was, that became a way to defend this Right. That, be- that that became a way to defend our right to be here. And we rallied behind it. I remember back in right before the marches of 2006, people, to your point, we started talking about the day without a Mexican. Mm-hmm. And they were like, yeah, like nothing will be open. You will not get your burrito. You won't get your house clean. And we were really excited. Exactly. I was really excited to say, like, look, we are we are part of this fabric in one way or another. Right. And you will not see us. And how the disappointment is when like, well, shit, we actually got to show up to work like, right. because we are dependent on we have to work. Well, we also speaking of what who does that type of labor? Um, I mean, Jack, as you were uh, pointing out, like that type of um, labor that's supposed to have no skill. Right. Um, that is brute labor. Um, in Puerto Rico, we know uh, there's a saying that goes, you know, it's a trabajo de negro. That is, you know, jobs of blacks. Right. And um, 
as a culture that is a black culture, right? Puerto Rico emerged out of slavery, right? That is our history. I always, I'm always going, I'm like, well, exactly. <laughs> Isn't then that our job, right? Like, but there's a way of um, using kind of these social class status where we're all poor. I mean, I grew up in a really poor, when I lived in Puerto Rico, I lived in a really poor neighborhood in La Playa de Ponce. When I lived uh, and I grew up in New York City, in the Bronx, in a really poor neighborhood of immigrants, of Caribbeaners, of Mexicans, of Central Americans, right? And none of us wanted to admit that we were on welfare. None of us wanted to admit that we had shit jobs, right? Like none of us wanted to admit that, even though this was a community that did not leave a seven block radius. We saw each other buying, like, before you used to use coupons before the EBT card, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So you showed up with this funny colored paper money, <laughs> and you had, like, you had the little booklet, and so you went and you bought, like, salsa and, like, <laughs> all that stuff. But none of us wanted to admit that we lived in dirt poor conditions, and that when we were saying, like, ah, oh, it's a trabajo de negro, or that's a job I don't want to do, the question then becomes, well, that is the job that is being offered to us, right? And it is a limiting job and it is an oppressive job. Um, but that's pretty much all we had. That's interesting. I actually had never heard that saying. Really? Yeah, I, I've heard trabajar como un negro. Mm. Um, but maybe it's because we were the negros working that hard. <laughs> right, like that was the thing. We were all the negros <laughs> working that hard. Like my mother like cleaned buildings. Like my first job was cleaning. Like yeah. I had all those jobs and it's just like, or worse, um, to but shame it's, you. It's interesting so, to put in race discourse amongst um, like, amongst Latinos too, right? Like amongst so the Latinx other, communities, right? To talk about the I, complexities of race that we always leave out of these conversations. Right. But I digress. Well, I was just thinking, it's so funny to hear this, and I've been fascinated by the experiences of Puerto Rican and Mexican. Mm-hmm. So we have that saying too, but there's a second part to it. So it's trabajar como negro para vivir como blanco. You were that, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's... <laughs> So like so it's even more complex. Yeah, that's what you're saying. It's like, oh shit. Like, like it's just more revealing. Right. <laughs> but listen, I was gonna um, I mean adding to like the um, I guess the lessons part of this conversation too, um, I wanted to go back to like some of the elements of DACA. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, what I also think we don't want to lose is the ability to criticize it mm-hmm. and to make sure that we are not defending it so um, voraciously, is that the right word? That we're not defending it with such fervor that we were with so much fervor that we forget that it was problematic, mm-hmm. right? That it was constructed in a very problematic way. And that, you know, the hope is that we hold on to it because it was presented to us as the only option, but that we also remember that we have a lot of work to do, that it cannot be the end goal, that um, that, it, that, it, that people pay a heavy toll to be able to even participate in it, um, even if it stays around, right? And I think... Part of why I think we have to be conscious about that is because I've been hearing we're not really paying attention to even like what Trump is saying about it, who I don't think is the most informed individual about it either. I think he's just like repeating what he hears, frankly, a lot of times, but that he'll use it and they are going to continue to use it as a they're going to talk about how problematic it is, right, for even the people involved and use it as a way to shut it down. When you say they're going to talk problematic, who do you mean? 
politicians. Politicians, okay. Politicians are going to use this rhetoric. They're、yes. going to say, and they're already saying it. They're already going to say, well, it's not, you know, it's not good for them either, right? right?、Um, because that's what we were. We were critical of、yeah. it when it first came out. We were, we were those of us who、um, were invested in. A policy that was more universal, a policy that involved、um, more of the family and less of this sort of idealistic、um, approach to what was going to be palatable to the average American voter.、Um, and and and、um, so, for those of us who were critical of that,、um, you know. It's gonna it's it's gonna be a challenge to、um, both defend DACA and critique it, right? But that we have we have to understand that we have the right to do that, that we have the right to to do both、um, carefully、um, with consciousness and intentionality. It's interesting to hear that the politicians are critiquing it because I don't think they are. I don't know I don't if critiquing think, is the right word. Or, I think they're going to use. They're leveraging it. So they're they're leveraging it. They're、yeah. leveraging it, and it's happening again. So yeah, what the, the the news that came out last night with Pelosi and Schumer saying that like Trump will support the Dreamers at the exchange of more border security and wall. This is not innovative. This is the same tactic that we saw happen in 2010 and 2012 when they were trying to figure out what to do with Obama, and essentially.、Uh, As created as the only option, we lost so much. Yes, eight hundred thousand people, some included, right?、Uh, it changed their lives for the better. But that didn't change the fact that by doing that leverage, it created the deportation machine that Trump inherited. It created the separation of families. It created the more border security, militarizing the border wall in a way that actually goes against. Actually, this is part of Clinton too. That goes against the Geneva Conventions, right? Like there is machinery at the border that is supposedly not allowed in acts of or, or, or moments of war, right? But that exists. And it will continue to happen. And now they're talking about it as like, well, let's support these dreamers in, ex- in exchange for more border security. So I don't think that they're 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 leveraging it. But the community on the ground, back in back before DACA, we were saying like we cannot demonize the parents at the expense of the kids. Sorry, <laughs> intensity. I get excited. <laughs> But we cannot demonize the parents at the expense of the kids, right? And we still win with it because that's what the only thing we had, and that is not even part of the focus anymore. No, like, but、yeah. that is part of the breakup of the family, right? Because we talked previously about the idea of like the model、uh, immigrant, right,、um, which is usually associated with being Asian, right? And we ignore that not every Asian immigrant gets to be gets to be at MIT, right, and doing a PhD in economics, yeah, right? Like、oh, that's absolutely <laughs> that's not what we're seeing, right?、Um, but um, One of the things that、um, I find with the dreamers is like we're creating this myth and stereotype, right, of what the right type of brown immigrant will look like, right, and is at the cost of the family, right, in very particular ways. But I want to challenge something else, though. I mean, I want to challenge. I think that this is why this is such a complicated conversation. What we also don't want to happen is that somehow we revert to. Um, you know these heteronormative, family-centered discourses, either because 
it's not just families, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, we're dealing with individuals that don't fit the model of the nuclear family. Like, I, I, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it shouldn't be either, it shouldn't be a defense of a particular unit, right? Of a particular way of existing. Um, it should be a universal defense of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Like it should be that, um, it should be that people have a right to be here, right? That people have a right to come to a country that was built principally on the notion that this was an a, a, an alternative, this was a haven, if you will. Like if you if we want to get as idealistic in defense of the principles of democracy and what we were supposed to be building here in this country, which we, by the way, leverage to actually attack other countries. <laughs> we still actually use this as a reason to invade other countries, right? So that being said, you know, the way that we practice it here can't be based on a particular way of existing here, right? In terms of how, you know, how we fashion our existence. Like you have you have to be a family then to deserve to be deserving of our empathy. Well, that's right? what I think the contradiction of that is. We have to demonize the parents, yeah. right? So there's a separation, there's a break, you have to break off with your parents, right? You have to denounce them. And the type of model uh citizen that you could be through as a dreamer is someone who's an overachieving, mm -hmm. over-the-top, you know, super citizen who is perfect in every way, right? And in that, and I wasn't suggesting that mm -hmm. the, like, the unit, the traditional unit of the family should be there, but it's in a really fascinating, almost sci-fi way, it's asking for individuals who have no procreation past and no procreation future, mm -hmm. in the sense that the idea of a dreamer being someone who is gonna be a house husband, or you know, we could take husband and wife out of that completely, but someone who's gonna be there and produce more children for the state is not something that's being imagined, right? You have to be someone who does not duplicate. <laughs> So you You're work, a one-shot right? deal. I will work. I will work for the citizen. I will work for the state, for this nation state. But I will not reproduce, right? So this is just a one-shot deal. You're just a one generation, and that's it. And that's a long history of people of color, um, and for example, welfare uh, laws, right, and policies. Um, this has changed in many states, but. Um, if you were a woman with children who was receiving help from the state, your husband could not live in the home with you. Um, if he was an able-bodied man, he could not be in the home with you. And that was a perfect way of breaking up families, right? There's this wonderful documentary film called um, The Pro-Igo Myth in Urban History. And it talks very specifically of how that happened with the Pro-Igo housing projects in St. Louis, um, where women were left to fend for themselves in these housing projects on the edge of the city and they broke up families specifically and they were black families right um, and yeah. I feel like there's something there in the way that that myth of the dreamer right of what that perfect immigrant brown citizen can be and it's a one-shot deal so, can, so the one-shot deal piece or the, the myth of the dreamer or how we're actually constructing who the dreamer is 
the reason I feel that people are tapping into that is because it continues to sustain the, this idea of like the American dream or the struggle of meritocracy, like the success of the individual, right? That's absolutely and, right. That's and, absolutely right. And That's... so it actually helps us uphold these other myths that are falling apart yeah. everywhere else. But if we focus the energy, like, so like let's give them this opportunity, whether they procreate or not, they're making it, they're working it, as Mariela said, they're contributing to the country. That's what the American dream is. But we got my brother and I were adopted families, um, and one of the families, my brother's family, since I was really young, we've always gone to political debates, conversations, and at one point they said, go back to Mexico if you don't like it here. Mm-hmm. Because, and their argument was like, you are the example of the American dream because you've succeeded. And I was like, ah, do not put that on me, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that the way that we talk about these folks, it allows us to justify other pieces that, that are not making sense in our current political moment. Yes, no, and I actually think it's even more, ins- like there's another level of insidious too to this because, and I think you're absolutely right, Ali, and I think that we have plenty of, <laughs> plenty of examples of um, the, um, we have plenty of examples of the, um, the the strategic dismantling of black and brown families. I think that that's part of that's that's a legacy of um, colonialism that will you know will never cease to be a strategy that will be employed you know mm-hmm. against uh, against people of color. So there's no question about that. I think that you know to to your point, Danielle. I think that the the other layer of insidious is what it does to us in terms of thinking about divisions of of class of social class right because if we privilege the experience of the educated immigrant right that means that we have to be critical of those who aren't right, right. and we fall for that this is where divide and conquer then starts to come in is that we start being critical of those who aren't seeking an education who aren't seeking to quote unquote improve themselves who aren't contributing to society in ways that we um, value and privilege in, in, in this day and age right and it's really easy to convince people my concern at the end of the day, even beyond how it might affect sort of the average white American, is how it actually affects our own communities, right? Like what the impact is on our own communities and our ability to defend each other and stand for each other um, and work in solidarity and, and co-conspire um, together as we should, right? And I say this especially as a Puerto Rican who has imposed citizenship, right? And I've seen the way that my community um, leverages that and manipulates that to either defend or deny that right to others. And so um, I am always looking for what it is that we're responding to, mm-hmm. right, in order to be able to challenge it and dismantle it. And I think that one of those things is that rhetoric of who deserves to be here, right? Who has the right to be here? So either you're laboring, right? Either either you're providing that manual labor, you're cooking for someone, you're cleaning for someone, or you're looking to improve yourself. I mean, listen to that language. So you're not, you're not necessarily being a good human being by providing manual labor, right? But at least you have a function, right? Um, or you are actually trying to be a better human being by quote unquote educating yourselves, getting an education. And please, don't don't think that somehow that isn't like uh, um, that that is a representative of um, my particular position on this because to be very clear I will fight for it right I will fight for the right for, for my students 
right, to I will do whatever I need to do, right, at my, at, um, in my capacity to defend the right of those students to be able to stay and to be able to have a decent education beyond decent, to be to give them my absolute best. Um, that's my responsibility as an educator, uh, I believe, and, and as a human being, but that at the same time that we don't lose sight of the other things that we are responding to ignorantly sometimes, oftentimes, um, and that we're victims of, right? Discursively, that we're victims of and that we're responding to constantly um, as we sit back and either not respond, right? Respond apathetically or worse, actually attack and, and not support the people that need to be supported, which essentially is anyone, 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 really everyone. Because even in terms of like the whole idea of criminal of criminals, right, of criminalizing people and, and, and deciding that those don't get to stay. Well, we have plenty of criminals that we sustain every day here that are, right. you know, citizens of the United States. Right. And we don't talk about deporting them. Right. I think also um, you mentioned like you being used as like, well, you go back to Mexico, right? Like this notion of like making it out. Um, I'm a first generation um, like high school graduate. Um, and certainly uh, my generation and my sisters and I um, are seen as we made it out, therefore everyone else should make it out, right? And that dialogue of making it out um, is so violent and so problematic because um, one, it, certainly I see this with some of my sisters who are like, you know, in Puerto Rico we have uh, the notion of being a licenciada. <laughs> Right, being someone who has like some kind of authority through a license mm-hmm. um, is really important, but also it whitens you in very particular ways. So it lifts you up in this kind of social um, strategy that, that has to do with colorism, but it also silences those who are educated, right, who have made it out. And the discussions that I have with folks from my neighborhood, which is very few, from my neighborhood in the Bronx who made it out, right, who are no longer working at Mickey D's or who are not going through the prison system in and out, right, and that um, in the ways in which poverty traps you into those spaces, um, they need that that narrative of making it out. Mm-hmm. Yep. They need that narrative of making it out. And when I point out to them that the reason, certainly why I made it out, was a lot of it was luck. I mean, my mother had a lot to do with it, right? Um, I was lucky that I did not have um, drug addiction in my home. Um, I was lucky that my mother supported me in many ways, right? Um, and that she may not see herself as a feminist, but sure as hell was one, is one, right? Um, but when I point out that there were other people who were like my mother, and there were other kids who were just like me, but that I made it out and it had a lot to do with luck. And I'll give you a really basic example. Look, I didn't end up pregnant. Right. I didn't end up pregnant as a kid, right, as a, at a high school. I didn't end up pregnant in those spaces. And that allowed me, in a really lucky way, to avoid some of the traps, right? Um, I went back to college in my, in my late 20s, right? Like, all these things are oddities in that neighborhood that had to do more with luck than with actual... Uh, anything that I was actually doing. Not that I was passive, but there was a lot of people who were doing the things that I was doing. And I kind of wonder, going back to that myth of like the dreamer of the perfect brown and black citizen, right? Um, This immigrant citizen. How much of that are we implicit in the way that we discuss 
and the way that we betray our own needs for the purpose, at least from the Puerto Rican point of view, of almost being white. Of, reach, of almost reaching that, you know, that mecca of whiteness, of being allowed in, right? That's interesting. Um, that's like bringing up a lot of things, and I'm like thinking. <laughs> but that's um, that's a that's a really let's see how that sounds. I feel like that's a really privileged argument, in the sense of saying like we're reaching for whiteness. At the end of the day, when we strip analysis, when we strip theory, when we strip like all the thing that we've learned, is being a person who is undocumented, we have no agency to live our life, right? And at the moment, the making it out piece is so strong, whether you're in Mexico, whether I would assume in Puerto Rico or wherever you are, because not having shit to eat fucking hurts. Mm-hmm. Not having agency to be able to get up and say, today I get to go to work. Like, I have a job I can attend to. I can feed myself. I can figure I don't have to sleep in a car, right? Like, that making it out piece is of of, of existing in, an, in, a, in a world where you just get to live your life, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, going back to what you were saying in terms of we can problematize DACA, we can talk shit about the politicians or whatever, but I will fight for it, as you're saying, because I understand how students are saying, like, I just want to live, and part of that is making it out, and so it's hard to me to that, because you're right, it's attaching it to this idea of whiteness, but it almost makes me bad, or makes me feel bad saying it, because in a way, not that this is right, but in a way it feels like I'm invalidated the need of just wanting to live. Why should white people only be allowed to have the comfort of yeah. fucking existing, well, right? Well, it's not just that. It's not even just existing. I guess my own my concern that I have to interject <laughs> is that education and knowledges and access to that is not whiteness. I refuse to hand that over to whiteness. I refuse. I'm not going to. But what I also will not abandon is that element that of privilege in the process of getting there and gaining access to it. Because as somebody who quote unquote made it out, there are things that feel like luck to me, right? There are things, there are many things that feel like luck to me. What I, my hesitation to say that is that I never want to forget my responsibility in giving back. Right. I never want to forget that. I never want to forget the privileges that I had along the way. Right. That I am privileged. That I had privileges. Right. That it is now my responsibility to make sure are accessible to others so that they could, quote unquote, make it out if that's what they choose. Right. Right. If they if they feel like they have to make it out. Right. But. I was surrounded by people who didn't feel like they needed to get out of anything. There was nothing to get out of, right? They didn't have circumstances that made them feel oppressed in that way. I did, right? I had circumstances that I felt like I needed to leave from, that I wanted out from, that I wanted more, you know, to be be able to extract more out of the world that I was experiencing, that I wanted more knowledge, right? That I wanted more um, access to things that I could see from far away, right? Um, and not, and I didn't, I, I didn't really qualify them as white, right? I, I understand that in this particular society and in many other societies, those spaces have been, um, those spaces has have been 
have been historically um, have been historically como se dice, designated mm-hmm. um, for to those with white privilege but it doesn't mean that they inherently own them but right? I can challenge so, you a little bit on that and connect it back to what uh, Jeff Hugh to what um, um, Danielle was saying earlier um, that notion of that's colonialism at its finest, right? Like everything that's bad, everything that's ugly, and this is Fanon, right? Fanon talks about this. Franz Fanon talks about this. Everything that's bad and ugly and black is uh, everything that is that is black, right? And he talks about negrophobia in that particular way, right? Um, and there's this notion of um, you saying, well, we have to give back. Um, like I made it out, I work hard. I'm not suggesting that people who make it out don't work hard. I'm just saying that the people who are working hard and just didn't make it out, and a lot that for me at least that distinction of making it out and certainly for my sister Nadia um, she and I are two years apart and we you know, grew up apart in, in New York City that making out was luck but there's two things you both said that I kind of want to bring together which is just let me live <laughs> that notion of just let me live and that notion of giving back and I thought of um, Lorna Di Cervantes' poem and I pulled it up because I always mess up the title and it's um, the full title it's a long, long title um, poem for the young white man who asked me how I an intelligent, well-read person could believe in the war between races Mm -hmm. and this is a poem um it's it's a beautiful poem right um and one of the things that she says um and i'm going to read a a little uh one of the uh, a section of it i am a poet i am a poet who yearns to dance on rooftops to whisper delicate lines about joy and the blessings of human understanding i try i go to my land my tower words and bolt the door but the typewriter doesn't fade out, the sounds blasting and muffled outrage. My own days bring me slaps in the face. Every day I'm deluged with reminder that this is not my land. Um, and later on, she talks about wanting to be um, writing love stories, like writing, writing love poems about love, but of course racism doesn't let her. Um, and I think that notion of just let me live <laughs> and uh, I have to give back kind of come together for me in this poem because what if I just, the let me live sounds like I just want to write, I don't write poems, but I'm putting myself in this position. I just want to write poems about love, but I know full well that I don't have that privilege because I made it out and that I have to kind of go back constantly. Um, and whether it's writing poems about love or doing other things that don't feel racialized, right? Um, so what are you challenging? I'm confused. I'm challenging this notion of having to give back and not being a white thing because Privilege. This notion of privilege and making uh, making it out, um, at least the way that it was formulated for me as a Puerto Rican growing up in New York City and having this access and this memory of Puerto Rico, which is very different for second and third generations when they don't have that memory of Puerto Rico, right? Like that notion that there's a land that exists full of Puerto Ricans who are not all poor. And that was my experience. That was my little sister's experience in New York. Like she only knew Puerto Ricans who were poor. Um, and there's this whole island full of people who who had access to wealth. And I had seen it, I wasn't part of it, but this notion of like, when we were told to be better, and when we were told it was always in comparison to whiteness. So that notion of achieving, 
of getting out and achieving, uh, you know, being progressive, right? Um, not progressive, but having progress meant behaving and acting less like the poor Puerto Ricans that we were and more like the white people that we never saw in our neighborhoods, right? Um, and so when I say that we had, you say, well, I've, I refuse to give the notion of being, uh, of of making it out, of being educated. I refuse to give that to whiteness. I'm 100% with you, but the way that it was formulated um, growing up was that you were accessing whiteness in a way or the other, one way or the other. Like I wonder though, and I'll, I mean, I'll challenge you by saying, I wonder how much of that doesn't have to do with white skin privilege too though. Like, sure. I, there's no way that I could convince anyone that I will ever reach whiteness. Well, neither right? can I. Like it's a lie. Like it's, a, it's a trick. In a community where phenotype matters, mm-hmm. like there are those of us who just won't ever have access to that. And it's you a know? lie, even for those of us even who are like Even if it is a lie, though, I wonder how that doesn't affect your psychology about it, right? Is that if you know that, you know, that um, assigning exclusively, exclusive whiteness to something, um when you n- can't in any way imagine yourself existing, and, and no one can imagine you <laughs> existing in that, if that isn't something that allows us then to move beyond luck and you know want it and 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 desire it, especially when it has nothing where we have legacies of intellectualism in our own histories like we have you know we have amazing scholarship we have incredible arts in our own legacies that are have no connection whatsoever to Eurocentrism right right? and so access to that makes us realize that no these aren't the these aren't the purview this isn't like exclusive um, domain of of Europeans this is the exclusive domain of whiteness, right? I want the type of intellectualism that allows me to belong to my own history and 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 have access to it and share share that access, you know. And maybe it also has to do with the fact that even though I didn't come from a very educated family, then my parents both reminded me of my blackness and um, and reminded me that we had those legacies. You know, that that was my privilege. That wasn't I don't know that I don't know that that part of it was sheer luck. You know, I had parents that even though they didn't have formal education, they would turn to me and educate me, you know, mm-hmm. at, at levels that became very helpful for me to be able to fight along the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I have a question. So we're talking about DACA, the getting out, the way that we're formulating the dreamers. <laughs> we were. We're talking about our own experiences and how like we're, you know, like theorizing or talking about those. But we also have people who are in the process by the form of education, or the way that education is packaged and being sold of you do this, you will get out. Mariela, <laughs> like <laughs> I wanted to bring you into the conversation and like I think that we're talking about it like we did this, you're doing it. You're yeah. doing it. How does this, like, I don't know, I'm just interested to hear what you think, how does this resonate with you, like, what's coming up for you? Um, well, of course, I carry the privilege of being born in the United States, and attached to that is the inherent citizenship. Um, but just within my community, um, I see folks who are struggling between that idea of making it and also struggling with that idea of now I every move I make has to be safe, has to be structured, has to have purpose. Mm. Mm. 
um, and they're being told by surrounding people who may think that they have good intentions in telling them so, um, who just feel suffocated. Um, and something that I wanted to ask y'all is how how do you teach um, teach those legacies of culture and of um, existence um, to your classrooms, not in the form of trauma? Hmm. Because I've been in settings where they want to introduce that idea of you belong here, you're part of our community, but they did it through um, experiences of trauma. And so that's how we access sympathy. That's how they justified it. And it was disgusting to the point where I couldn't be in that setting anymore. So I wanted to ask, how do you teach those legacies? That's a very challenging question and, and, and one that is hard to hear from a person who sort of was trained in a generation that depended on those tactics. And I'll say that right away, like that's, we needed to go through that in a, like through, you know, we, we inherited the hard work of those who created these um, disciplines, who shaped these disciplines for us. And I'm talking about disciplines like ethnic studies, right? So we were sort of, I was, I sort of belong to the next generation that inherited those, those spaces. And we, um, many of us had to introduce um, knowledges in that way, right? Because that's what we were responding to. We were responding to like the initial stage of having to look at our work, at our culture production, at our expressive culture, right? And the poem that you just read, I remember that reading that in class for the first time very clearly. Um, and there's trauma in that poem. It's a beautiful poem, but there is trauma in it, right? Like right. there is a trauma that we have to face. Um, and you can imagine that an entire curriculum built on that can be very challenging. Um, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what you're referring to, but I, that's, that's my memory of the interaction with the challenges, the difficulty of both learning about myself, um, appreciating the, the cultural production aesthetically, and at the same time sort of toiling with the political piece, right? The political part of this cultural production, which oftentimes forced me to really think in terms of healing, right? And so um, I think that, especially as somebody who works in the humanities, um, I'm personally, as a teacher, on a mission to um, um, rescue the sublime, right? Rescue the sublime, to rescue and um, reveal, like my responsibility, especially as somebody who does text analysis, um, and that's the, that's the only area that I'm going to claim to work in, right? Because there are other people with an expertise and with knowledge to, to reveal other things. But for me, as somebody who works with literary and cultural criticism, you know, I, I want to be able to share um, the passion that I saw um, when I learned to love literature, when I learned to love the arts, and when I learned to love politics, um, I wanted I want to be able to reveal the passion over the trauma, right? Like the um, the moments of 
uh, discourse, like the moments of conversation, um, over giving that space, right? Giving that energy entirely over to trauma in, in the ways that, you know, many people, many of my mentors even felt like they had to sort of focus in on me for me to learn about myself. Right, um, and they did it all with very good intentions. Right, they did it all because they um, it was a gateway to to the politicization. Right, and actually, if you look at like theories of politiz politicization, even like conscientización, for example, like there is a there's an element of having to traumatize people in order for them to learn. And this is progressive politics, y'all. This was progressive education theory, right? That you had to be like hit with it so that you could learn to be to reach that meta consciousness maybe we're, we're at a different time and maybe that's maybe that's what we need to do next for education so your your critique is right. i'm hearing it you know um i think i brought up that because the way that i saw it play out sorry um the way i saw it play out in the classroom was that um there's still this distinction of power, as in I'm handing over my trauma, but you have to, this other person has to have um, the final decision as to whether I'm going to take that and do something with it, and not just put it up to for display for everyone else. It becomes a fetish. Yeah. And I think that's a danger. There is a danger of that, of teaching. Um, certain literatures, for example, I love Joseph Savelle's um, Black Shack Alley. It's a Martinican um, novel, and it's it's a hard novel to teach, right? And um, there's a character, Mamantine, who who passes away, and she's like. The novel is set right in the in the aftermath of, of the end of slavery and walking out of slavery, right? That notion of walking out of slavery. Um, Jose, the one of the main the main character who narrates the story, tells us about how his grandmother is trying to break that cycle of producing more children for here, not the plantation anymore in the sense of slavery, but the plantation in the sense of the sugarcane production. And it's a novel that I love, and I'm about to even cry because every time I read it. And I've read this novel and I've written about this novel and I've read this novel, like been reading this novel for more than, you know, like now it's more than 13 years. And it still makes me, still affects me, still digs in. And there are times when I'm like, I force myself to teach it at least once a year because um, it reminds me of the research and the work that I want to do as a scholar, right? But it also, it's a novel that I feel like everyone should read. But there are times when it pisses me off when students read it. <laughs> When I'm in conversations with students and like there's a dismissal or there is uh, like this turn towards it which feels fetishistic, right? Um, and I feel like whenever I teach it, I always walk away with the same thoughts like, no so well for you like no more for you like you no don't so have <laughs> you have no right for this <laughs> because even though like I'm not Martinican I'm a Caribbeaner um, I feel like this legacy which is trapped for us in like captain's ledgers and like the, the the economies of slavery and it is in these fictions that we get to commune with our ancestors um, and there are moments where I'm just like I don't want this to be a fetish, right? And in teaching in a predominantly white institution, black texts, right, Caribbean texts, um, texts of native folks or texts of like Chicano folks, it's just like you feel 
there's this fear of um there's this fear of presenting a text and having someone poo-poo all over it, right? And it's just, and it's such a personal hit. Like I, I, I physically feel it, right? I physically feel it when I read papers and students say horrifically racist things. And I'm trying to remind myself, these are young people. <laughs> I'm just checking for their writing and their critical analysis, but like the, like, like, and I should be kind in my way of saying, rethink this, you're using the language of racism, you're using the language of colonialism. Um, so I'm on the, on the thinking of trauma and thinking of hope, because I like to end my classes with hope, but that hope doesn't look the same. For example, I like to end my Caribbean literature course with Junot Diaz, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. It's hard for students to just understand that for me, that is one of the most hopeful novels ever, right? Like, even thought Oscar dies in the cane fields, like, again, how beautifully prophetic, right? Claiming his love for a black woman, for a woman who has been dismissed by society, who is not considered to be a good woman, right? That he dies saying his love for her, right? Um, I think that's so hopeful. He's he's in the cane field saying that, right? And when I tell students that, they just look at me like I'm a weirdo. And I'm like, no, this shit is progress. <laughs> to have a man of color saying that he loves another woman of color in the cane fields and then being killed by other men of color, like that shit is progress because we don't talk about that. We don't talk about self-hatred. We don't talk about that internalized racism. We don't talk about how colonized our mindset is. And that's hopeful for me. How that feels for the student of color who's sitting there and reading novel, poem, short story, theorist after theorist of like spewing out trauma, anger, and hatred, that has to be heavy on their side. It's heavy on my side, and I've been doing this for a while. Like, that's just to be the worst. It's just like, oh man, I just want my W Corp like requirement. Why is this woman torturing me? And that's how they end up in my office, like, what the fuck? I'm like, you know, it's part of the <laughs> when I, I heard students saying that, and I think I imagine my students have been sort of saying it too, right? And mm-hmm. at, at our university, but it was it was interesting to come here and hear students talk about, um, you know, despair in the classroom. Students of color talk about despair in the classroom, um, and I shouldn't have um, forgotten that because that's how we were. That was our experience. I was a student of color in the classroom, right? Um, and so. I, you know, I, the experience that you shared is like resonates. It resonates. It just, I guess, it's also um, food for thought, or like intense thought that it hasn't ch- shifted. That we haven't learned how to adapt and how to take this pedagogically to the next level. You know, um, and. I think that I do get lost in in that defense, right? Like I I also get lost in trying like desperately to show the beauty of the things that I do, right? Like the things that I love about the things that I do. Um, And even like the disagreeing, right? Um, I'm not a huge fan of Juno Diaz. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, where sexism as a I mean, I can't get past certain things, and but I also appreciate that people have this like readings of his work that are way more progressive than I'm able to see at all times in his work. Um, so, you know, 
I like the like discourse is um, beautiful to me. Like the argument is is argument and 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 theorizing and and de deconstructing is is beautiful to me. And I love for students to be engaged in it. But um, there is that there is that other level of expectation that we have from students of color that I think is um, burdensome, right? That it's it's heavy and burdensome. Um, so I think our my goal personally and hopefully the goal of that I would love to be able to share with um, colleagues and those of us who are you know think tanking these things is how do we how do we push beyond that you know how do we how do we come up with other learning goals mm -hmm. that that have student that center the experience of students of color because so we, we also were trained to center the experience of, of, of white students that's how we were trained right um, because the system of edu education privileges that student and so if we were trained under that system then we can't help but always sort of be thinking in that in that way um, but we have to shift that we have to remember that that we have to create a, a, a different and and yet same ex, you know experience in terms of access mm. for all students all identities right it's, it's a responsibility that we have we have to we have to um, challenge all centrisms right um, and not not just students of color you know um, you know all all identities all identifications Mariela do you Sorry, well, I was just going to answer the question, okay. but I can't get out of my face, that my head. <laughs> uh, uh, I love the I books. I had it on my face, too. No, I love that. <laughs> Uh, I love the books, but to me, Juno Diaz is like he wears his feminism as a pickup line, and I cannot remove that <laughs> oh, from like I, I cannot I, pull I, that I out. <laughs> I, I cannot pull that out from his books. I love the books, but you, it's weaved into every you know, like the character. Like that is, I, I just can't get away from that. But I'm this not, is not sure about Juno that Diaz. Diaz is. Um, it's. I don't care about Diaz. I mean, I don't care about him. Mm -hmm. I care about I care about those characters and the way that things are they accidental? Were they planned? I don't care. But like what he does in that, like the idea of turn, whether he was like, well, let's just talk about black women. I don't know if it was that accidental, but I understand. I have a lot of critiques about him in general. Yeah. This is a great example. I mean, I like the example. And I mean, I like the example in the sense that I think it really highlights how all of us continue to be complicated beings, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's our work, whether it's our personal lives, the way that we even talk about it, right? I'm sure there's another story going like, oh, I know that fucker or that guy me uh, and he's he's an a-hole right like and so and so I think I think I like the example because it's complicated mm -hmm. right it's complicated and, and, we're, and, and we, we're complicated yeah. to answer your question I'm really I really appreciate your question because it's actually challenging me to think about the way in which I talk about um, our own uh, suffrage or histories and I say suffrage you know to me that's a very positive and hopeful way and I'm going back to the way that we do storytelling storytelling con comunidades uh, Latinas, Chicanas, right? Like, like to be able to talk about our struggle, even in our own families, like, to me, that's a, a point of power. The world might be shit around us, but we are doing a good job of surviving and living and being there for each other. And we, the way in which we tell our stories, I always, like, identify, um, or the way that we tell the stories of our struggle, it's like, I, I get that from that. Like, that we, there is... Power translates very differently, and the way that we understand our own power is very different. But it's there, and we nurture it, and we share it with each other. And so, when it goes into the classroom, it, I am 
I love that like Chicana feminists like they're talking about that struggle and that's what I get it's not an issue of like like trauma voyeurism of trauma right like that's some other shit and multiple things are going to exist when we present that in the classroom but I'm hoping that the way that we frame how power through the stories of our trauma we can like the way that we can find that I'm hoping that some students will be able to get part of that and I'm wondering like maybe that's all I know I don't know I like how all, do I, I gotta talk it about just it be all that we our generation of teachers know right because that's how we were taught but like I'm thinking I started thinking about a friend of mine who's a painter and he um, he introduces his work and says you know I have this problem I have a problem with the whole idea of being a Puerto Rican painter because um, I think the expectation is that you're gonna look at my painting and you're gonna find a coqui and a morro <laughs> or a gigante and that's what's gonna make my painting Puerto Rican my painting is Puerto Rican because I'm Puerto Rican so it doesn't matter what I paint right and so I guess like personally like if you ask me how I wanna how I've I've tried to approach my work and and my teaching um, I want to show you that 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 Puerto Rican paintings exist because they're painted by Puerto Ricans as opposed to because they're about a trauma or about a coqui or about a about a theme that aligns itself with the type of um, politic that I was trained under and I think that that's where we'll have to radicalize our pedagogy is by showing students especially students of color that there is no parameter to the work that we have to do that there's no limitation to how it is that you can express yourself um, as a Latinx woman right like um, specifically or like uh, or however it is that you identify you don't we don't we have no right to, to educate by building walls right by building parameters as to how you could be how you how you should be existing and by the way there is beauty in, in there is there is beauty in politic right there is there is there is a political sublime right like there is a there is um there are so many possibilities in debate and in political debate right and it doesn't always have to be filtered through violence right it doesn't it doesn't always have to be violent is my argument why well, also i mean part of what i wanted to ask you is is also um when literatures be with when the literatures and not to be fiction right are being presented to you um to a student like you as a student um just like i have this relationship with the literatures that i teach right um there is that relationship that you two have with that literature but what gets in the middle is as you were mentioning this notion of teaching and this pedagogical approach what would be, as a future professor, right? Because you're applying to grad school. Yeah. What would be, what would be the thing that you will want to change? So, for example, as a Puerto Rican, as a Caribbeaner, who's asked to extend and teach other things that are not part of my personal identity, right? Um, where do you see yourself going in the future, in a sense of how do you approach that incident you had in the classroom where you felt? Um, whether it was fetishized or seen as an object of trauma, um, where do you see yourself going? Like, what is it that you would like to see in the classroom? Um, 
that's a giant question to answer. Oh, you mean the question you asked us? Dude. Yes. <laughs> How does it feel? Yeah, it was giant. But we did it. <laughs> right. Um, well, I think in this particular um, instance that I'm talking about is that there was no discussion or narrative about um, when we respond to that trauma that uh, like Eileen said you are using the language of racism and colonialism there was no discussion about that um, and that really bothered me Um, and so I think just coming to terms with it um like even if it does take up the whole class time, we are gonna have a discussion about what it means to have the language of racism and colonialism within us, within our thought, within our pedagogies. Um, and you're talking about the approach, the approach that the professor took? Yeah. And this was a professor of color? No. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I don't know about Daniel and Jackie, but certainly I'm willing to learn in the classroom. And I've learned a lot, right? Um, Certainly learned a lot about as a cisgender woman, right? I've learned a lot about my privilege in that sense. Um, I also, as a light-skinned Latina, um, who constantly, you know, growing up... You know, Alisa, you know, I had my hair um, chemically treated so I could be straight. Um, and I don't know why, right? Like, these moments of learning, you have, I mean, as a, as a professor, I feel like I have to kind of, I'm constantly being attacked whether or not I'm good enough to be in the classroom. And being a, a woman of color here, it's really difficult in many ways. It's very difficult for the students too, because I probably look like they're made. Like, I don't know what I look like to them, right? But I certainly don't sound and look like a professor to them, right? Um, having that moment of like being able to go, okay, I'm gonna take pride out for a second <laughs> and let you teach me something or let you speak so whether or not see how I could approach it. I think that's really hard, right? Um, and if you have the white savior approach to teaching, you need to realize like there needs to be some shift, right? Um, and it's not the job of the student to do it, right? Like even thought like, again, I had a class where I t- well, the first time I taught sex on film here, um, I was um, challenged by students who were gender nonconforming and challenged in the, the language I was using and the terms that I was using. And my first reaction was to apologize and to excuse myself, like excuse my behavior in one way. Like, well, I was doing it because of the, uh, and then I realized I was like, I'm stumbling. I feel myself stumbling through this. And I'm like, I need to shut up. And I literally said, you're right. Tell me more. And that's, I think that's a way of keeping our scholarship active. Um, I would like to think that all my colleagues do that. Like, have moments, I like to think that, Daniel, you're shaking your head. I said, I'd like to. <laughs> because that's what I want my students to model. I want my students to go, oh, shit, I have no idea about that. Tell me more. Like, I want to always be able to say, tell me more. But my certainly my pride and myself of 
protection, like I want to protect myself, sometimes prevents me from doing that because I'm under attack in the classroom. Right. You know, and that all that gets in the way. So I don't know how you in like seven, you know, maybe well less, right? Four or five years when you're in the classroom teaching your own class, how are you going to respond to it? But I shit. I would actually say that, I mean, going back to my experiences of being in the classroom as a person of color at the moment, I think that we can tap into what it means to negotiate your identities in that moment when you're trying to both engage in conversation and also negotiating like uh, whatever anxieties or pieces are of belonging in the classroom or having to have some type of authority. And so like, I don't think students have to wait until they're like, they're professionals. Like you're doing it right now. Absolutely. You are doing it right now. I don't know what we did wrong to make students feel like they, um, like, 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 like we have to be passive agents, like that we have receptors, right? I, I think that that's where we've gone wrong. I, not just am I willing to learn in the classroom, but I expect to. Like that's my expectation um, when I walk into the classroom. My expectation is that we're co-conspirators. That's how I like to think about it. Um, and co-conspirators because that puts an active expectation on both of us. I expect to hear you. Right, like silent. I understand that, especially as somebody who kind of grew up shy and introverted. Um, I expect that to be like something that you try to overcome, right? Because you have a voice and because it matters, you know. Um, and that um, while I have a lot of knowledges to share, I use like principles of funds of knowledge, where I expect to learn from everyone. Everyone has something to teach me, you know. Um, that's that's actually just an expectation that I have. One that I try to write into my syllabus that I try to practice um, and really encourage students to um, follow. In fact, it becomes my system of assessment, right, that we should all be contributing to this. Otherwise, what's the point of being there? We could go home and read, read online, right, or and then post about it. And then, and then we're done, right? I, you know, the way that I see it, education Just describe is in, online classes. Like, yeah, well, no, not, I teach online. I teach political will... movement online. Oh, so, my gosh. But, so the expectation is everybody's engaged. It doesn't matter what forum, you know? We'll be teaching by tweet pretty soon. I'll take it on. <laughs> I'll run away. I'll take it on. <laughs> well, anyway, um, Mariela, do you want to say some last words? Because it's it's been a while that we start talking. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason that I like brought in this trauma was because I thought about that being another way in which people are accessing this conversation about DACA recipients mm -hmm. and um, those who are undocumented about this idea that um, their experience are rooted in trauma and that's why we have to care mm -hmm. um, and like I just have a problem with that um, and I, I think it's part of complicating the conversation like um, Jackie said um, and I think we need to start thinking about um, more nuanced ways in which we access this conversation and the way that we talk about people that are undocumented or that are now um, struggling to find ways to stay in their community as DACA recipients. Thank you for that. And because in, thank you in the way that that allows us then, and especially the folks that are listening and us here to think about then, so how do we respond? 
because it's going to happen. We're mm-hmm. going to see it in a post. We're going to hear something some, something else. So I think this is a moment when all of us need to start practicing. So what's going to be our response, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, an example of that, people always say, like, especially when, in a personal violence, when I teach about sexual assault prevention, it's like, what if that was your sister? It's like, no, listen, asshole. <laughs> You don't need to have a sister to be able to tap into this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you're saying, you don't need to think of dreamers as individuals who were just like, this is this is the reward they get mm-hmm. for experiencing trauma. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. This is the reward they get because they exist in this world with mm-hmm. us. Because they're human along with us, yeah. right? And so listeners, people here, like, let's start to figure out like what is going to be our responses because that's when our work begins, right? That interpersonal conversation. Okay. Not take it for granted that mm-hmm. these are narratives that we have to accept. Mm-hmm. That this isn't, you know, you don't have to turn to the cliches mm-hmm. all the time to answer these questions. I think that's a really good point. And you brought us back to the topic. All right. So. Way to circle back. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, thank you. Jacqueline, Thanks. for coming, Thanks for, for visiting us. Thanks, awesome. Thanks for being here. I could talk um, with you guys forever, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we should uh, actually thank how we got Jacqueline here. Um, so, so thank you Eileen <laughs> no I meant who gave us the money uh, so do you want the Heritage Series the Center for yeah so this is the end of the station where we do all the thank you the end of the station the end of the program where we do all our thank you so actually I want to thank Emma for yes. being here Emma and Meadows Emma was great I wish Emma and, had been in the conversation yeah so yeah so thank you for all your help getting all this done I also want to thank the uh, I mean Westminster College and the part of the Student Diversity Inclusion Center were very supported by the school to have conversations about uh, power, privilege, and oppression through our heritage series, which we were able to bring you to be our lecturer for this month. So I really appreciate you being here. Oh my gosh, this has been an amazing privilege. Yeah. <laughs> One of the many privileges that I get to experience yeah. being so. in this, being in this, uh, being in this profession. So um, this is a pretty brilliant place. People are very lucky to be here. Yes, Lots of brilliant thank people. You. Yes. So. Welcome to Hogwarts. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, it is. Oh my it is truly Hogwarts. Oh my goodness. It's truly Hogwarts. You're the worst. Oh <laughs> I had to. Those, those, of you, those of you, uh Harry Potter, I don't want to say nerds because I don't want to... Hey, I wear that with pride. Okay, with pride. <laughs> all, you, all those uh, Harry Potter nerds out there thinking about colleges, if you don't go to DePaul, <coughs> come here. This is, uh... Oh, we call that Drumsworth? Yeah. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I, mean, you, I mean, you do have the devil. We do. Yeah. We do. Right. The, the, demons. Yeah. the demons. The demons, right? The yes. demons. And they practice dark magic. So. Yes, that's true. Yes. <laughs> With Slytherin. that. Slytherins. I actually, I'm a Gryffindor, and through my student workers are Slytherin. Yeah. They're challenging me on issues of inclusion. You got to love oh, the Slytherins, yeah. right? So anyway. I, I kind of think I might belong to Slytherin. Really? House too, yeah, so. you and my husband will yeah. get along. All right. I've considered, I've considered divorce. One more time, can we go around and say our full names? <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I'm Mariela Vasquez Gordo, and I'm a student here at Westminster College. I'm a senior uh, studying sociology and gender studies. Aquí su servidor, Dan Cairo, director of student diversity and inclusion at Westminster College and a community member of this beautiful valley. Eileen Chanza Torres, uh, I'm the chair of English and Gender Studies. I'm Jacqueline Lazu, associate professor of modern languages at DePaul University, associate dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, and a very happy, happy, happy community member <laughs> here right now in this moment um, sharing with all of you. So thanks for having me. I can't um, express just what a learning experience this, this has been. Like most intense 48 hours of, of, of <laughs> hey, you're not done. 
According to Elise's itinerary, there's more. Uh, I also want to thank the listener. If you hung out with us all the way till the end, give yourself a hug. You rock. You rock. So you, you, you're helping this podcast keep growing. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you.